Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. So a few weeks ago, one of my contacts within the podcasting industry sent me an email and said, hey, listen, I've got this guy, you've got to get him on your show. He's interesting. He's got a new book coming out and a really fascinating character who could add a lot of value to your, to your listeners. And, and I said, awesome, let's get him on. So I present to you today, David Richards. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about David, but uh, firstly, I just want to say I had such a great time talking to him. He's, he's such a knowledgeable person. He's got so much, uh, such an interesting perspective on life. Uh, and, and you'll see why in the interview. But uh, so David Richards, he is a life strategist, number one international best-selling author and speaker on personal development. Uh, so he blends elements of yoga with quantum physics to bring the esoteric together with the practical for a truly unique perspective on how the mind works. In turn, creating easily understood self-development plans that create lasting change for a more fulfilling life. So uh, he is a military marine turned yoga instructor and author and, and seriously, he's got so much value to share. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview and uh, and. I present to you none other than David Richards. Okay, so David Richards, I'm I'm excited to have you on today, mate. And uh, and you know, obviously you've come at high recommendation. And I think that we're gonna, as you said before this, you know, we're gonna cover a lot of ground here because you've had such a wealth of experience in your life. But for the audience at home who haven't heard of you before, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your life, uh, your experience, and and then we'll jump straight in. Sure, Simon, thank you so much first for having me on. I'm really excited to speak with you. So yeah, um, I was in the military, in the Marines for 15 years, uh, saw lots of different parts of the world. Luckily, um, wasn't in uh, violent places that were too violent when I was there. So uh, Somalia was probably the, um, the toughest spot. Um, grew up in a military family, so moved around quite a bit. Uh, my father was in the Marines for 31 years. Um, you know, we lived in uh, up and down the East coast of the U S we lived in Japan for three years. Uh, and so as a kid that, that really creates kind of a, a pretty incredible impression impress, especially when you don't speak the native language and you find yourself in the minority. Um, so 15 years I did in the Marine Corps, uh, in combat arms and then into communications. Uh, and then for the last, uh, almost 15 years have been working in support of, uh, uh, corporate America, working at uh, Fortune 500 companies, and and then helping people uh, through speaking and writing, and uh, just helping them find their own solutions. Mm, yeah, no, I love that, and and obviously we're going to touch on uh, your experience now as well. I, I understand you've become a yoga teacher as well, and 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 so. I, <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been teaching. Uh, so it's yeah, there's a connection there, and I didn't even think about it, but um, I I read the week after I got out of the Marines, I actually read an article in uh, Sports Illustrated and it talked about how our professional football players in the NFL used yoga to strengthen their midsections. And so this was back in 2006 and I don't su suspect that yoga was kind of as widestream or mainstream 
then as it is now. Uh, mm. But I took my first yoga class, uh, wasn't really crazy about it. Uh, second yoga class, two days later, different instructor, um, drenched in sweat and just marveled at the mental awakening that took place. And so a year later, I became an instructor. So yeah, I've actually, I've been a yoga instructor now for uh, just about 12 and a half years. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love it. And you know, what I'd love to do uh, to kind of start us off here is um, I'd love if you could share the various experiences that you had, say, you know, what did, for example, your military time teach you about life and about humanity? And then going into corporate America, you know, like what, what did that teach you about life? And then moving forward into your yoga, how, how did you find yourself as a yoga teacher um, after all these various experiences? Wow. Um, That's a loaded so question. <laughs> it is, it is, but I think, I think you framed it in the right order, right? Because I think um, certainly the military and then of expression of how I created my adult, my adult identity. Um, and then shift into corporate America, even though I, I kind of went to yoga beforehand, I don't think I fully stepped into appreciating yoga until the last few years. So, you know, going into the military um, was really kind of a decision around uh, finances. And what I mean by that was I had sat down with my family and we said, hey, <clears throat> academics, you're going to college, you can pay for half, we'll pay for the other half, you want to get a job. Um, if you get a scholarship, great. So ROTC scholarship um, was initially going to be in the Navy because I didn't like the Marines uh, because we moved around all the time and I kind of blamed the Marine Corps uh, for us moving. Uh, and so that was frustrating and uh, probably created some resentment for my father because he was the Marine in the family. Um, so uh, every semester at university, you have to take an ROTC course. So ROTC is one of the entry programs into the military. Um, and so the first one was weapon systems. So like Tomahawk missiles, the stuff that uh, Tom Cruise fires off his F-14 Tomcat and Top Gun and that's really, really kind of cool stuff. Mm. And um, the second, the second semester was ships engineering. So like mechanical engineering, how engines worked. And uh, as a liberal arts major, that wasn't going to work. So mm. uh, I jumped into the Marines um, after, after not being accepted the first time around, uh, really kind of got the, the fever and, you know, I think one of the big lessons I think to take away from my 15 years in the Marines was um, you always need to look kind of at a bigger picture. And the example that comes to mind, Simon, is I was part of the initial landing force in Operation Restore Hope in Somalia in December of 1992. And the intelligence we had received was that we were going to see a thousand armed Somalis at the beach to greet us. Uh, and so that created a lot of tension. Uh, we're, we're off the coast of Mogadishu on Navy ships. And um, I was with the artillery. And so if you know anything about artillery, it's kind of, you know, back in the day was eight or 10 miles behind the front line and, and would lob shells in and um, the infantry called them for support. But because artillery wasn't gonna come ashore for the first few days, um, they asked that I would be a provisional rifle platoon commander. So I would take infantry and, and the mission we had initially was we're going to set up a security for the command element once, the, we, once we secured Mogadishu, the airport and the port, um, and then the command element would come in and we would provide security for them. Well, 
around three o'clock in the morning, the night or the morning where you're going to land, they said, hey, that's changed. You're not going to do that. You're going to set up a roadblock outside the airfield and confiscate weapons from people trying to get in the airfield. Okay, easy enough. So got ashore, no armed smalls at the beach, uh, only camera crews and film crews from the news media, which was <laughs> pretty surreal. Um, and, uh, and so we set up the roadblock and the sun was coming up and, uh, you know, it's going to be a hot day, our first day in Mogadishu. And um, the first vehicle came up to the checkpoint and the sergeant who was kind of in charge, who was my platoon sergeant, if we will, opened the door, grabbed the driver and threw him to the ground. And I looked at him, I said, Sergeant, and I won't say his name, but I said, what are you doing? I said, this is a humanitarian mission help him up and tell him we're going to search the vehicle. And it wasn't that the sergeant was doing anything wrong. It was all the tension of hearing the day before that there are going to be armed Somalis who are, you know, who are looking to kill you for no reason mm. other than you're not part of their team. Mm. That's hard to rationalize. And so here's this Marine who's trying to do the best he can and is just full of this energy. And so, but when I said, hey, take it easy, this is, we're, we're here to kind of, it changed not only his approach, but it changed everybody around me's approach. And so he helped the mm -hmm. guy up, they searched the vehicle, guy got back in his car, drove in, the line proceeded. Um, so it was really eye-opening to kind of step back, remember, kind of purpose and, and purpose has become a fundamental part of my life in the last few years. In fact, I was just telling someone today about the purpose of my soul, um, mm. which we can talk to later. So transitioning into corporate America, the first, the first five years, I think every day, Simon, I would compare what happened that day with what I knew from the military. Mm. It was just so different because one of the things about the military and part of it's by necessity, they give you your identity. Yeah. If you have ever been to the States, if you've ever seen a TV show or a movie about Marines or Navy SEALs, there is an identity. And that's part of what you're buying into when you sign up for that kind of program. So when you get out and you transition and 90% or 95 or 98% of the population of the people that you're now surrounded by don't have military experience, it's a huge, huge shift. And you kind of look at it and you're like, what are the boundaries? Because in the military, there really aren't boundaries. You mm. sleep, you know, in the same area. I've, I remember in Somalia, I slept on the top of a vehicle with a buddy of mine because we didn't really get our throat slit. And you go to the bathroom, you shower, you bleed together. In some mm. cases, you hurt together, you mourn together. I remember um, you know, I'd probably been uh, at Cisco, the, the IT company, for about three months and had just come back to lunch with some of the engineers. And I'm walking up the stairs with one of the guys and I said, I said colorfully, I don't know if I can use profanity, so I just said colorfully that I needed to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And he, he looked at me in disgust and surprise and he's like, keep it to yourself. <laughs> you guys don't talk about that stuff. Oh man. Oh, like that could be a whole five minute conversation in the Marine Corps. Like you could talk about, I mean, so, so it was, you have to reset, but part of 
part of what you have to understand about resetting, or I didn't understand it, it took me you know, four or five years to understand it was, resetting means letting go of the identity that you got in the military. And again, the military does it for a reason. They need, that's how you get military efficiency and effectiveness is you kind of brand everyone with the same idea because then the sense of purpose and the sense of unity and the sense of camaraderie is stronger. So I completely get it. And it's not to say those things don't exist in civilian life, but their proportions are much different. Yeah. People have a different perspective and different value. And it's not as common as the military. It's more broad. I think everyone has kind of a common goal of happiness or freedom, but the paths to get there are so multiple. And in the military, mm -hmm. you're trying to, you want to get to the outcome. Ideally, you'd like to go everyone the same path, but you'll take people who are you know, willing to adapt and improvise. Um, the yoga piece, you know, it was interesting to transition out of something like the Marine Corps, which is fairly conservative, into something like yoga, which has discipline to it, but um, the identity is starkly different. It's not completely different, but it's starkly different because um, just the sense of wholeness, the relationship between observer and observed, hmm. um, the sense of awareness. And so as I went kind of into my initial yoga training, I wasn't really keen on um, what I call kind of the crunchier side of yoga. You know, when we think of yoga, we typically think of the, the physical practice, but that's only one arm of the eight arms of yoga. There's much more to it. There's spirituality, there's not harming. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't get as far into those. And then, um, so, so let me pause there. The, what I took away and what I, I think still continue to take away from corporate America is diversity matters. Mm. And diversity matters in the sense that the more views you have on an idea from different backgrounds, the better idea you get. That's mm. just all there is to it. If you have more diverse views and perspectives on an idea, a concept, a product, you're gonna get a better idea, concept, or product. Um, so I, I switched back into yoga, and a few years ago, I really kind of got curious about quantum physics. It was kind of just coming online, it was hot, and it was this idea that, I don't remember, the. I read a book and it talked about, depending on what you thought, if there's like two huts, and, you have, I don't know, coconuts. And like, it was like, if you think the coconuts are in hut A, then you lift hut A up and that's where the coconuts are. If you think one's in A, one's in B, then that's their split. If you think they're not anywhere, then they're not. And it was just this, what the heck are people talking about? <laughs> like this quantum yeah. physics. Um, and then I heard something when I was writing my first book about uh, this experiment they did with light. And they were trying to determine if light was matter, so it was a particle, or it was a wave frequency. Mm. And so they did something where they had like these walls set up with these thin slits, and they would shoot a beam of light through this. And what they found was if the observer was looking for light to be matter, a particle, the observer saw a particle. If the observer was looking for light to be a wave, 
energy, frequency, the observer saw frequency. Hmm. And that kind of pulled me back to some of the deeper ideas of yoga because the idea of yoga is this wholeness and this unity and this kind of collective. And I said, well, if we, if we can shape reality, like based on what we view, then what does, what does one's own reality really look like? And, um, and that led me down. So I, I, I wrote my first book, um, got back into actively teaching yoga. I'd kind of taken a, a brief hiatus to kind of reflect and, and look at where I was. And um, I think what, I, what I've come to take away from yoga is yoga is the, yoga puts anyone who follows it on the doorstep of understanding what we are. Hmm. And it's not, it's, it's philosophical, but I just, you know, I just finished, I, uh, probably last month, I guess, I just finished Dr. Dr. Joe Dispenza's Becoming Supernatural. And if you haven't read the book, it's fascinating as an exploration into bringing some of the elements of yoga. So chakras, the energy centers in the body, seven energy centers in the body, you know, and supposedly five or six above us, um, and making it scientific. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I say it almost the wrong way. He brought science to the chakras. And I looked at that book. I, I read it. I've done the meditations. And I was like, son of a gun. They figured out how to connect science to divinity. Hmm. And that's what that book represents. Um, yeah. So yeah, jump, jump into that. Answer, yeah, no, no, I, I love that. I, I, and I appreciate you sharing, sharing all those lessons that you learned from the military and corporate world. And, and now, you know, it's almost like you've had the, um, you know, that, that strong identity in, in, you know, given to you in the military. And then you've come out and you've seen all of this diversity in the corporate world. And now you're focusing on the spiritual side of what we are. You know, you've seen those elements of what we are. Now you're trying to focus on the spiritual side. And I don't know that much about yoga. So I'm going to guess that a lot of people in my audience also don't know as well. Um, some of them probably know heaps, but for the absolute beginner, somebody who's just coming into this, you know, it's not yep. just a discipline of physical prowess, right? It's, it's, it's very much a spiritual process. I know that. So what is a beginner, somebody who comes to you and wants to be taught by yoga, taught about yoga? What do you teach somebody in order to give them a rudimental uh, kind of understanding of what it is? Yeah, it's a great question. The simplest way to understand yoga is yoga is about awareness. Mm. So if you and I are talking right now, I've got a bottle of water to my right. My kitchen is to my left. And someone walks into the kitchen and I look over and I see that person and I think, oh man, oh, I forgot to say happy Mother's Day or, oh, I got to take out the trash. I forgot to do that suddenly my awareness has shifted. We're no longer having a conversation. Now I'm over here and you're still Mm. here. Like what is David doing? So we want to be mindful of our awareness. That's probably the first thing I would tell someone. And what is awareness? Well, awareness is just kind of being present, being present in the moment. We are having a moment right now. I'm present with you. Mm. So how does yoga teach that? Well, 
what's one thing we all have in common that is always present with us? Breath. Hmm. You never think about the breath you took 20 minutes ago. You don't think about the breath you're going to take in two hours. But if I say, tune into your breath, you're automatically going to tune into your breathing. And I just say, now notice how you inhale, close your mouth and inhale through your nose and, and exhale with just a little force through it. And then if you really tune into that, you can hear it sounds like the waves crashing on the ocean, on the shore. Mm. But now you're present with your breath. And so I say, okay, if you're going to take a yoga class for an hour, be present. So what, mm. what does that mean in yoga? Well, tune into what your body's doing. But if you start thinking about the person in the kitchen or what's for dinner, or did I pay the, did I pay that bill that I forgot was due yesterday and is still on in my to-do list or email or whatever, whenever your mind gets distracted, it's going to happen. Don't be upset about it. Just come back to your breath, come back mm -hmm. to your inhales and exhales that gets you back to present. And when you get to presence, what you find is ultimately, the more time we spend thinking about things that happened, the more we are living in the past. And it's not, that's not theoretical. That's your awareness is scattered across your past. If I keep thinking back to 12 years ago when my dad died, or I think back to 30 years ago when something happened, then I'm living in that moment. So I'm not fully in the present moment. And, and sometimes we do that. Well, why do we do that? We do that because it takes us to a feeling if I think back to when my dad died, the feeling that I most want to feel is what I felt right before I found out he was dead. Mm. That's, that's really what I feel. So it's, it's, we feel this and we think about this because we want to feel this. We want to feel that thought just before I got the phone call from the police officer in the condo. Oh, oh man, that's what we really want to feel. Um, so there's nothing wrong with visiting the past, but you know, if you think about why we're creating the internet the way we are, Facebook, we're trying to put our past online so we don't have to use this thing between our ears to think about it so much. Mm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Uh, and, and okay, so much to take apart there. I'm, I'm excited to talk about all this because you know, I, think, I think that there are uh, commonalities among a lot of ancient wisdom you might say in various philosophies various practices such as, as as yoga and a lot of eastern philosophies right there's a lot of continuity throughout there um i just want to touch on that last thing that you said uh, to do with with facebook because i'm very fascinated by social media lately i'm trying to figure out this whole system because it seems like social media is this thing that just came along and we all just accepted it without actually questioning whether it's good for us or not and now we're all on it and we have no idea what the effects are going to be long-term for humanity. Right. So what, yeah. what's, what's, what's your, what's your view on that exactly that, that it, it takes our past and puts it online. I think that's an interesting direction to go. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about it, what are we doing as a civilization there? And it's interesting. I, I meant, I'll be honest with you because of the nature of your podcast, I wanted to do, I wanted to revisit Marcus Aurelius before we talked because yep. I've just, the man, incredible. Um, mm. But but I just felt like it would have been good and then I, I didn't get the let's, chance. Let's, no, let's jump in there soon too. Because I, okay. I, I, I was going to bring up something that he said as well and we can discuss that. But, but yeah, go on. So I used to think that social media was this huge distraction. 
and in ways it is because we have the last I checked, I was, I was just kind of researching my third book, which I just finished yesterday and I was going to do uh, a conventional book, but then I completely changed on it. So I was researching and we have three and a half billion cell phones on the planet today. And so you think, well, if we're generous, some people might have two, one for work, one for personal, but let's say half the planet has cell phones. We check cell phones on an average of 85 times a day. Hmm. So in one sense, you think, well, how, how can anyone ever be focused on anything? Hmm. Checking a device 85 times a day. Yeah. And I think it's hard. I really think it's hard. On the other hand, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if I was going to do an interview with you and I wanted to read up on Marcus Aurelius, I would have to go to a bookstore, drive to a bookstore, yeah. find a book. If they didn't have it, I would have to order it, which could take four to six weeks. Or I could go to the library. Or if you're really old, you remember we used to have these things called encyclopedias. Mm. which were books from A to Z, and they covered all these things that it was important that we were taught and needed to remember. Mm. Today, in 2020, just because I didn't get to it, I could have taken five minutes to gone online and search Marcus Aurelius. Mm. And from what I remember about my dealings with him as a subject, I can refresh in five, 10 minutes, all these things that I remember because I'm looking at this information now, mm -hmm. instead of having to do this laborious process. So what have I done? I've gone to Wikipedia, I've gone to Google and gotten 17 gazillion search results in the span of half a second that teach me anything I wanna know about Marcus Aurelius. And what do we know about the internet? The better question you ask, the better answer you get. Mm -hmm. So if I say, when did Marcus Aurelius die? I get specific information. What was his greatest accomplishment? I get specific information. Yeah. So, so now, between social media, which, yeah, it can be a little much, but between Facebook, between Twitter, between Instagram, between Wikipedia, hmm. we're creating kind of the unimportant part of our mind online. And if we have an internet that can keep track of photos from 10 years ago, I can search up someone who lived almost 2000 years ago. I can keep information like your phone number, your email address, somewhere where it's under your contact information. I don't even have to know that stuff. Hmm. Then now what I'm doing is I'm freeing up all this mind to be present. And if I'm present, I can be more productive because I am here because I'm not thinking about things that I did three years ago or 20 years ago or trying to remember who this guy was from almost 2000 years ago. Mm. I can be present. If I'm present, that's when magic starts to happen in our lives. Mm-hmm. That, that's an interesting perspective because that's uh, the, I, I think it's probably more of a, uh, um, 
it's a kinder perspective towards social media, right? It, like there, there is a purpose there, which is, and I've been thinking about this because it's, it's not as if one individual just made up that this is what we're going to do on social media. It's like they, the companies very much tailor the product to what the masses like to use it for. And they'll add their little experiments from time to time that maybe we take up, maybe we hate, and then they'll take that feedback. But it's very much a hive created thing. And, and what's interesting about that and what's interesting about what you're saying is it, it does seem as though like humanity is kind of creating an extra part of our brain that's outside of our brain that we can leave there. I, I think that there's uh, almost catastrophic effects of that kind of uh, detachment from for all that kind of, from a lot of things that you see on social media, but, but there's, yeah, there's also got to be benefits. And I think it's an interesting perspective, right? That we're, getting rid of a few things that we don't need to focus on. The only problem that I have is that then you do get addicted to going through and looking at everybody else's memories and how many memories are you creating for yourself, right? Like that's, that's the stuff that I'm worried about. And that, and that's the trade-off because I think in some cases you almost have to train yourself how to use social media. And I think, I think, I think, you know, so do you play video games? I'll just ask you just off the top. I don't play video games. Okay, so let's think but about. We can this. go down that direction. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's I think it's tied into social media because in some ways gaming platforms are social media because you keep up scores and you've got mm. groups and teams and communities. Um, I I used to love playing shoot up war war games. First, it was board games. Excuse me, and then it was um, simple, you know, like chess kind of things, but simple simple games, and then video games came on. And I was just over at someone's house uh, earlier, even with the social quarantine a bit, but we're loosening up here. Um, And this guy was playing one of the latest games. And I realized he was playing to survive. He wasn't playing to go just kill people wantonly. Mm. And then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? We are teaching a generation that it's better to fight wars online in pretend places mm. than real ones here. Mm. And I said, that's pretty good. I think when it comes to posting and there's this idea that you see everyone's best show or best program whenever they post, you don't see the 25 takes that didn't look good because Sally was burping or because Jason had his eyes closed and making funny face. You don't see those. You just see the one where the family is like, Mm. Oh my gosh, they're in Maui and it's perfect. (laughs) And she's gorgeous and he's handsome. And the kids are like poster children. And I think you can appreciate what that family has because it's always going to be different from what you have. But that in no way diminishes your ability to make an amazing memory with your family. Mm. In fact, we should celebrate the differences in diversity and that, oh my gosh, I saw you guys' trip to Greece. That was amazing. Those pictures are breathtaking. I've never been. Let me show you my pictures too when I went to Turks and Caicos. It's mm. it's not as cool as Greece because I'm such a fan of Greece. But And then the other person's like, oh my God, I love scuba diving, snorkeling, Turks and Caicos is epic. So I think you have to put social media in context. And in some ways you have to mind your own business. And that's not to say 
don't pay attention to what other people are doing, but treat your life, it's yours. So how do you want to mm-hmm. live it? Do you, if you, do you want to watch people make memories or do you want to make memories yourself and then post them? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a trade-off. Yeah, no, I think that that's a fair assessment. You know, obviously, uh, you know, it's not as if you would say to everybody, hey, you have to get off Facebook because it's like ruining your life. You might say, hey, listen, if it's ruining your life, it's not because of the, the system. It's because of the way that you're interacting with the system and it's because of the meaning that you're attaching to what you're seeing on there, right? So, yeah, there's there's got to be that element of, of, of personal reflection as well. But um, yeah, well, we can, I'd love to jump back into the yoga side of things. And, I, sure. and I'd love to, like, I don't know how much you've kind of delved into Marcus Aurelius in your life, but um, you seem to have a favorable view of him. Um, I, I think he had such a noble vision for what Rome and the world could be. Yeah. Um, and I think it's tragic that that vision wasn't fulfilled in in the time that he thought it would or when he hoped it might be um but i think no i I think he was a a brilliant man Hmm. yeah and 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 i i just wanted to maybe to open the conversation up to find some similarities between our specific disciplines because i recently i've been really delving into a lot of eastern philosophy because I, i i think that Eastern philosophy can actually bridge some of the gaps that we have in Western philosophy that we might not necessarily fully understand. And the, the process of stoicism, the, the, the journey of a person going through stoicism is not a purely intellectual process as we might understand it. It's actually very much uh, a spiritual journey. And, and all of the Stoics talked about it, Epictetus, especially, you know, he, he was, it, it's, it's a journey of spiritual growth. You're trying to connect with universal nature and you're trying to align with nature, right? And by doing so, you can tap into the thing that is constant and not the thing that is, is you know, you can, you can go after what's real and what is actually you. And when you were talking about air and, and you know, thinking about the breath and I, I, I can't point to any specific quotes, but I, I, I know that the Stoics have at times talked about, you know, this, this air that we breathe in and the spirit and, and even likened it unto the spirit. But I wanted to read this quote from Marcus Aurelius to open it up just to, because I feel as though a lot of what you're talking about is stuff that has been felt by various people in various disciplines and philosophies around the world, just under different names. But if you listen to this, so he said, human life, Uh, He's basically describing what everything is to him from his eyes. And he says, human life, the duration momentary, nature changeable, perception dim, condition of the body decaying, soul spinning around, fortune unpredictable, lasting fame uncertain. And he sums it up by saying, the body and its parts are a river, the soul a dream and mist. Life is warfare and a journey far from home lasting reputation is oblivion and then he goes on to talk about how philosophy is what guides us but that picture that he paints of you know like the soul spinning around life is a river it's a journey far from home you know this is all very you might call it spiritual kind of descriptions of what he's understanding right what is the what is the feeling that yoga and your discipline through yoga gives you of of what all this is and what all this means? What a great question. 
I think what I've what I've come to appreciate writing. So I've I've written three books. The second one is fiction, but it's in the guise of fiction, but it's a self-help book. And what I've come to appreciate is anyone who writes something, self-help, which is I think what in some ways Marcus was trying to do. It's his meditation. Hmm. <clears throat> anyone who writes a self-help book, the first person they're trying to help is themselves. Hmm. They can't write the book unless they've helped themselves. So when I hear Marcus talk about the soul being a dream and a mist and lasting fame and just the unending conflict, he was searching for eternity mm. and that's what he found. Mm. The flesh is decaying because he's getting old. He's not going to get there. He's not getting there the way he thinks he's going to get there. Lasting fame is oblivion. Mm. Oh, who wants that? Yeah. Really? And during conflict, how many decades? I mean, his life was pursuing this dream. Mm. And so you tie that in to, or how does that connect to yoga? I think what, the more I listen to different perspectives, Eastern, Western, Stoicism, Romanticism, Catholicism, Buddhism, mm. Hinduism, we're all trying to get to the same truth. We're just scratching at it from different angles. Amen. And stoicism is just an angle, but it's the angle of, if I can't appeal to your soul, let me appeal to you with reason. Mm. Let me appeal to you with logic. Let me appeal to you with dispassion. Because what I hear, what I hear from that is if you're present, if you're truly in the present moment, then there's this magic that happens because you see that life is happening for you. And instead of having to push against this invisible force that you're trying to make happen, things that are, no matter how hard you try, it's going to be impossible for those things to happen. Oh, if you just surrender, then life happens and your role in life, whatever that may be, fulfills itself. And I think when you release yourself that, to that idea, there's this kind of bliss. And it's not that you surrender, it's not that you surrender your will, it's that you allow life to guide you because that's all that life wants to do is just guide you. And I think that's, so, so if I hear, if there's a unifying message between the, these two disciplines, I think that's what it is. That was brilliant. Amen to that. That's, um, that, you know, that, that kind of answer is exactly what, you know, it's so in line with how I see this philosophy and, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's what I've picked, you know, and, and I came to it and I was like, man, this is, this is going to work for me. And it has, you know, like in many ways it has, but lately I've been so fascinated, as I said, by Eastern philosophy and, and yeah, Catholicism and Christian, I've been reading the Bible and all sorts of different, different works. Right. And what you do realize is exactly what you said. We're all trying to get to the same goal. We're just going by a different way. And I love what you said there, this idea that the Stoics said, you know, if I can't appeal to your soul, like, let me appeal to your reason. Cause that's, it's so correct, you know, and, and it's, it's just a different approach for a different audience, you might say. 
And this makes me think even of Alan Watts, you know, he would say that, you know, in some ways it's actually quite dangerous for people in the West to just jump straight into something like an Eastern philosophical discipline, because they don't have the thousands of years of culture behind them that actually fits perfectly with that discipline. And, and so what I, yeah, what I'd love to do now that we've kind of whetted our appetites with, with a bit of stoicism, a bit of yoga, I just want to know from you for the rest of this episode, tell me what it is that yoga specifically teaches you and, and what it has given you in your life and the, the, the kind of understandings that you've come to so that we can maybe find some common ground here as well. Great question. Um, so I'm going to share a story from yoga and then I'll explain what I took away from it. So I'm, I'm not, uh, for most of my teaching time, I've been a very practical teacher. In other words, I don't bring a lot of spiritualism to class. Not, not what I consider. I don't, and, and by spiritualism, I mean kind of the structured approach of yoga. I don't talk mm -hmm. about Hindu gods. I don't invoke Ganesh or Dharma or Shiva. Um, I don't talk very much about the chakras. I teach yoga in a gym. I, I owned a studio, co-owned a studio for a few years. Um, but even that, because I was in corporate America, I just, I couldn't kind of expose myself to that practice. So every once in a while, I find a source of inspiration. Something hits me and it's not that I even consciously say, I'm going to share this in class tonight. It's I get to class and the words just come out. And on one particular time, I stood in front of the class before we started and I said, your mind is like an ocean where all your memories are, everyone you ever met, everything that's ever happened to you is in your mind. And your awareness is like a lighthouse. And you can shine your awareness wherever you want. If, you, if I say, think of the worst day of your life, what do you do? Your awareness goes to a specific spot in your mind. Mm. If I say, think of the best day of your life, maybe it's wedding, child's birth, whatever, that's the day you go to. And so what I took away from that was when you understand how the mind works, you can master your mind. So my first book was about finding your purpose in this life. My second book was about mastering your mind. And it was in between kind of the release of my second book and finishing my third book yesterday that I realized I was writing about me hmm. in all three books because a self-help book first and foremost helps the person who's writing it because hmm. that's what a self-help book does. So I realized what has yoga given me? Yoga gave me the footsteps without a thorough understanding of yoga's origins. I mean, I've got an, a vague understanding. I know some of the textures, I know some of the books, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, different elements, but I'm nowhere near a yoga master. It's just, mm. I mean, it's just not something that I've pursued. But the idea of presence, the idea that you can be aware, and if you can become aware that you're aware, 
you can reach a higher level of consciousness. That for me was what I got out of yoga and mm. still continue to get this day. I want to touch on this idea of being aware that you're aware. Um, sure. I'm going to describe to you a feeling that I had a couple of months ago as I was really kind of trying to understand my own discipline in stoicism. Right. And, and you can tell me if it's similar to the way that you kind of feel about it. And then I'd love to discuss your new book as well. But I got this feeling as though, uh, the, the, almost the spiritual aspect of stoicism was calling us to view even our own rationality. Right. So it's just like, like, so we think we know, right. And, and that's, that's been the, the greatest, uh, the greatest, um, you know, advancement of humanity and also the greatest, uh, you know, what would you call it? Um, defect of humanity, right. Is this fact, it's kind of like that pride cycle that you see over and over again in ancient texts. It's like, we start to think that we have all the answers and then because we think we have all the answers, we get crushed by nature and then we start to build up again. And, and, and so it, it's it's almost, it's clear to me that that life isn't a purely rational battle for human beings right but it's almost as if um with the spiritual side of things we're dealing with something where it's almost like a a meta rationality where instead of just living in your own hyper overthinking world where you think that you know all the answers you can actually step above and view even your own rationality. And the way that I see that is, you know, if, if I look at the way that humans act and we can see this now because we have social media, you can see on a grand scale, how human beings act and the very crazy nature of what we are as a hive creature, right? When you see that, then you realize that, hang on, I'm not separate to all these people. I'm exactly the same as all of them. I'm just part of the tribe, right? And so even I yeah. act in the way that they act. And when you understand that, then you understand that you don't actually have perfect rationality. But if you can step outside that, then you can view the world like Marcus Aurelius did with the view from above technique. And you can view it and say, okay, now I can see my own rationality and I can see its imperfections. And so why would I live purely in that hyper-rational world? Because rationality is the thing that believes itself right? That's what the ancients taught, right? Yep, yep. Is that similar to the kind of the view that you take? Is it stepping outside of yourself and viewing yourself for what you really are? It's, it is, but I think it's done through a different lens. And I think Marcus yeah, talked me. about doing it from a rational perspective. So thought. Mm, yep. So stepping outside your thoughts. Mm. And I think, and that's a very human view of the world because most of our lives we define by what we do. Mm. I mean, lasting oblivion is what he gets for his, his fame. And I, I mean, and, and he, he gives himself too little credit because here we are still talking about him yeah. and his genius this time, you know, in this day and age. Yoga's perspective is a little bit different. And yoga's perspective, it's not just the thoughts, but it's also the feelings. And so yoga talks about our sense of attachment and detachment. And if you and I have been friends for 10 years and we get into an argument and you say the one thing that you know is just going to give me a punch to the chin and you say it and I'm just, oh, if I'm aware 
and I'm aware that I'm aware, then what I can do is detach myself from these feelings that I'm having and saying, oh, look, those feelings are being generated by what Simon said. Isn't that interesting? Mm. That's so interesting. Like that, like that, those feelings are so, I mean, I can feel them. They're almost visceral to me. I can sense them, but, but I'm detached. And so I don't occupy the space of how that actually makes me feel. And so in many ways, I think if I could sum up the two different perspectives and how I think they're different to an extent is Marcus in some ways is talking about a state of doing yoga starts to talk about a state of being. And I think there's a path where those two connect. I think, I think that gets more into the divine order of things kind of perspective. But I think that's the connection I see Simon is one is an approach towards if I can detach to what I'm doing, I can see things more clearly. Maybe I can make better decisions on mm. the battle or the campaigns or the overarching strategy to you know, bring the wild world of Germania under the empire's rule. Whereas yoga is like, you know what? You, you are not your mind. So when you feel something that you don't want to feel, if you can detach yourself from it, you don't have to feel it. Hmm. And you get to that level of consciousness, you're like, well, that's a pretty good deal. Like I, I can just observe thoughts because that still takes you further down the path. So now we're no longer talking about just being present and being present with your breath. Now we're talking about the relationship you have, not just with this mind, but with this body. Hmm. Because now we're saying, well, okay, what is the body? Well, the body is kind of a record of the past. I mean, I've got scars. I've got you know, wounds, you know, I've got soreness, like the, because emotion is the language of the body and thoughts are the language of the mind. Okay, well, now I'm getting somewhere. So now the body is sort of a history. Mm. The mind is not history because it's, I can go to the mind, the mind's right now, even though the body's right now, but it's, 51 years old, 40 years old, 20 years old, whatever. Um, so I, I think that's where I see the bridge between those two. I don't think they're dissimilar. I just, again, I think it's, I think Marcus, his purpose on the planet was to get as close to the truth as he could with the mm. path that he had to take. And I think that's why people read meditations today. That's why he is seen for who he was because of the path that he dared to take. And he had to, I think. Yeah. And, and I, I agree. I don't think that there, that the approach is that dissimilar. It comes back to that understanding of detaching from what is not necessarily the mind, right? Like, so, um, you know, they would say that, yeah, so you'll have these emotional responses that well up within you. And that might be fright, it might be fear, it might be anxiety, anger, whatever it is, it'll pop up. But if you can pause in that moment and recognize that that's actually not your mind, you have the power to interpret those emotional responses within your body a certain way. And that's, it's such a brilliant approach for calming yourself, right? And, 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 and receiving that sort of equanimity in life. I love it. And, and so, yeah, conti continuing on that line of thought then, because I like this this idea of detaching the body from the mind. Not that it's 
exactly possible because without the body, who knows? But um, but there is there is a well, theme within stoicism of despising the body because it's like, well, listen, um, this this is my vessel, but it's not me, right? Like like I I live up here, but do, do you know what I mean? I know I do, and I do, and I, so so let's go back though. So what I mm. said was, if, if we go back to what I said earlier, you are not your mind. Yeah, your awareness and. One of the things that some of the meditations I've done teach you is, you know, so there are seven energy centers or seven chakras in the body. Mm. And one of the practices, and, and again, I, I tip my hat to Dr. Dispenza because uh, he was kind of my final step into writing my final book or my, my current book. Um, he, he basically trains you and teaches you how to pull your awareness from your bottom chakra up to the crown of your head. And so typically, close your eyes and direct your awareness to the top of your head. You're gonna close your eyes and you're gonna look, you're gonna kind of look up, but then you're gonna to start to visualize this part of your head. And so what you're doing, and especially if you practice and train yourself to do it, is you're pulling your awareness out of the body and up to the top of your mind. Hmm. And, and I did this a couple times through his um, meditations. You can get to the point now where you pull your awareness out of the body. Hmm. Where does your awareness go? It goes through the quantum field. It goes into the quantum field. The quantum field is where the relationship between time and space is inverse from the relationship that we experience here. So here, if I want to go, if I'm going to go visit you in Australia, I have to wait for the quarantine first, but then I have to book a flight and it's going to take me 26, 30 hours, whatever, to get from where I am to where you are. Hmm. So for me to close on the space that we perceive between us, we experience time, 26 hours. it's flipped in the quantum field. In the quantum field, it's eternal space. <clears throat> and so it's all this space, but it's all blackness. It's just all, it's all blackness. But when you're in there, that's where you start to create possibility because now you're thinking about the future and it's not how the future is gonna happen, but it's what do I see myself for the future? I see myself a billionaire living a beautiful life because I'm helping people transform and find their souls. Oh, I, I see seven homes across the world. I see these beautiful things. I don't know how it's gonna happen, but I see that and I feel it because now what I've done is I've created a state of being in the quantum field. I have a thought and I have a feeling but I have my awareness somewhere else. Hmm. That's basically um, kind of how, if, you, if you're familiar with the law of attraction, if you've heard that, it, it, may, hmm. be from the, it may be on the far side of stoicism, um, but that's kind of what the law of attraction is. Yeah, okay, so, so, so it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, so I haven't delved that deeply into the law of attraction sort of stuff before, but that's the kind of idea is getting outside of, whatever this is 
and yep. into so that's what Joe Dispenza talks about getting into the quantum field and and, yeah, what, and, and he does it yeah and he does it but he 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 does it in the most scientific way I've ever seen like I've never heard people talk about kind of getting the purpose of meditation and getting into a place but he was the first person for me maybe someone else has done it for someone else but he was the first person for me who scientifically said hey here's what Einstein said when he said all matter is energy vibrating certain frequency hmm. boom you have this field of energy around you because your frequency boom okay if you're even as physical a body as you feel you're really energy so the higher we vibrate the more energy we become if i'm really angry or sad or suicidal or something terrible i'm going to be more matter because my frequency is lower if I am blissed out of my mind because we're having such a great interview or, oh my gosh, today was Mother's Day. I got to be with, spend time with my mom. I'm, I'm vibrating a higher frequency because I feel this lo tremendous love that's now radiating through my body. And the heart is basically this giant engine better than kind of a nuclear power plant in many cases that, that mm. powers this whole thing. So that's a lot. I, I interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, no, no. There's a lot to delve into here. I think, I think we, we probably find common ground on a many, many areas. The only place where I would uh, maybe we could discuss this, but the way I see it is there's, there's a potential. Um, it takes it in the direction of almost what prosperity gospel is to Christianity, right? This idea of I can get it, I can get outside of this and I can imagine it, instead of saying my only goal is to like the Stoics would say, to be, to be genuinely grateful and satisfied with whatever happens to me in my life, no matter what it is. Um, and to receive flourishing like that, there is the potential uh, with what you said there um, of people thinking, okay, so this is now my technique uh, to become a billionaire. Right. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, there's, there's a certain, there, it's not as, as though it's a danger in that it's that what's, what's the end goal that we're going after here? Like what's the ultimate end goal? Is it to become a billionaire and you use the, techniques of of the law of attraction to get there yep. or is your only goal to uh to be satisfied with whatever life throws your way and to be to be an effective human being yeah so here's here's where i think yoga and the law of attraction we'll talk more about that here in a second advances some of the principles of stoicism i don't suspect based on what i know about marcus that he could see outside his destiny. Hmm. And what I mean by that was the quote that you gave, I, I don't, you know, I'd, we have to maybe have an email conversation afterwards when he yeah. said that relative to his death, hmm. because if he said it halfway through his career, it's pretty insightful. I mean, it's like, hmm. I, I'm, I'm trying to do whatever it is I'm supposed to do, which hmm. is this thing that I'm doing, and this is all I see. It's this unending warfare. It's uh, what is this going to get me? Like, I know my son is going to take over. He's going to be horrible. This is just going to be a train wreck. But if he had said, what if, what if I could unite Germania 
and have and teach them how to govern themselves? Or what if I could unite, you know, take your pick, England, or, and, and teach them how to govern themselves? They wouldn't have to wait for William the Conqueror. Like, I could do it. What would that look like? What's the possibility? So we go beyond this idea that I just have to play the hand I'm dealt. And I start to ask, what if? Hmm. And I think that's maybe Marcus never was able to get to what if, because he was always so busy doing. And he knew, he was almost, I think, trying to do his way out of what he knew was going to happen. I think when you look at, is the, is the end purpose, if, if most people, if you invoke the law of attraction, they say they want to, they want to feel the abundance of the universe. Hmm. The abundance of the universe. Well, what is abundance? You say, well, money. Money is abundant. I mean, we got $7 trillion in debt or something. We're all here's money. But if you think about what is really, what are you really after? Hmm. Freedom. I want freedom. I want freedom to live my life on my terms. I want freedom to never worry about money again. Well, what does that feel like? What does real freedom feel like? If I free myself, can I really be free if everyone else isn't free? No, because I won't be free from regret. Hmm. So if I want real freedom, everyone has to be free. How does that happen? So here's the interesting thing about the law of attraction, because the law of attraction, it's not explicitly spelled out in the Bible. My opinion, the Bible is one of the first books on the law of attraction. If you ever read Neville Goddard at your command, um, what Neville says is don't look at the Bible as the history of the people of Israel. Don't look at it as the remarkable story of Jesus's life. Look at it as psychological drama playing out in your psyche. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, I am has sent me unto you. Jesus is walking to temple with his disciples and he asks them, who do men say that I am? Not who do men say I, Jesus am, who do men say that I am? So in other words, who you say you are is a big part of who you are hmm. because words matter because words have power. So if I really, if I want to be free, I have to free everybody else. How do I do that? I create something that everyone wants. I create the pathway for you and seven and a half billion other people to find their freedom. That's how I get free. Hmm. But how do you do that? Um, you write a book about why we exist. You write a book about how creation starts. Hmm. You write a book that is the love story of the first infinity. And that's the book that I wrote and finished yesterday. Hmm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, t tell me about this. And uh, I want to preface it by saying that, it, that there might be a slight misunderstanding between us of, of what, what the actual goal of, of, of say what Marcus Aurelius would have wanted. So it's not necessarily, I would say I, I, the only thing that I would push back on is freedom exists, but 
I, I don't believe, and and I think that uh, those who who study, say, the Stoics, uh, and, and and you know, I think I think that a lot of a lot of ancient texts, freedom is what I see comes from. It comes from an individual pursuit, right? And and you see that everybody else is going after certain things, right? And if you go after those certain things, you're not going to be free because a lot of those things are false, right? But if you focus on the one thing that you can always uh, try to improve in yourself, that's your individual virtue, right? If you always focus on virtue and just doing the right thing, then you do free yourself because you realize that money isn't what's going to bring me happiness. Sure. Because, but, but that, my perceptions around money is what makes me happy or unhappy. Right. And so, you know, you look, if you want to go after money, that's fine. If you want to go after fame, that's fine. You know, you you can do that, but I don't have to, and you don't have to implicate me in that. And so I can achieve freedom right now based on my perceptions. And, you know, I think that some people take maybe the law of attraction to mean that, Whereas some people might take it to mean I'm going to have a yacht one day and I'm going to be a a billionaire. But tell me your perspective through your new book. So you've just recently come out with, or you've recently finished it. So congratulations. Yesterday you said. Yeah. Yeah. So um, first you, I agree with you hundred percent, not about money. Hmm. Um, If people, what we've done in society today as a whole is we pay tribute to people and offer gratitude in a lot of cases with money Mm. because it's a question of value. Mm. If people add value to your life, you're going to pay them money. Mm. And and it depends on the value. Like Mm. I went to see Tony Robbins two years ago, paid a nice chunk of money worth every penny. He has bigger programs that I will participate in in the future because I get it. I get it. Bigger payoff. And it's, it's not a question of well, why do they charge so much? It's you really aren't going to be able to process the benefit until you can afford to pay that much. Hmm. And that's a very different perspective. If you're like, Oh, so your mastermind or to be coached by you is a million dollars a year. I get it because Mm. you are a phenomenal coach, I will pay you a million dollars a year. Mm. I think, um, but you, you bring up a great point and I think it's, it's key to this book too. Um, everyone has a unique signature to the universe, every one of us. And I want to talk about, before we kind of dive into the book, I want to talk for a second about the law of attraction. It's called a law for a reason there are laws that govern the universe. Gravity is a law. Light is a law. The speed of light is a law. The law of attraction is a law. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean the law of attraction pulls away from people. It means people pull away from the law of attraction. A stoic, and I, and I think when, and I, I appreciate, I, I respect and admire you because you very delicately said, screw you, David, I disagree with you. <laughs> you said, I push back, which is kind of the very corporate civilian way to say, eh, I'm not sure I agree with your opinion. I'm big on corporate speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's okay. That's okay. This isn't Howard Stern, so we're good. Um, <laughs> but I think everyone has a virtue 
and that virtue is unique to them. And if we have now 8 billion people on the planet, that is 8 billion individual signatures back to the universe. Hmm. So um, it's, it's funny because I just released, uh, and it's still kind of being released with the quarantine, the, the launch has shifted a little bit. My second book, The Lighthouse Keeper, about mastering your mind, what we talked about earlier. Hmm. Um, in October of this past year, I ended a four-year relationship. Um, and it was, and I, I actually write about it in, in my current book. So, so the, new, the new book is called Being, The Book of David, The First Infinity. And um, in October of this, in, in 2019, I just ended a relationship and it was kind of this punishing form of love because it was this love where I thought I was helping someone become who I thought they wanted to be. Hmm. And that wasn't who they wanted to be at all. And, but because I had this belief that we had this common ground that we in fact didn't, I kept plodding ahead for four years. And finally just realized if, if I stayed in this relationship, I would be, I, this relationship would be my Marcus Aurelius moment. Like I'm gonna do this and it's gonna kill me and this is what I'll be remembered for. Hmm. And it's not, it's amazing person on the other end of the relationship, but it was just the dynamic wasn't gonna work. So around that time, this book being was just kind of an idea. The relationship ended and kind of being almost like a spore popped and just all these little things started popping out to the universe. I, um, I, I got coffee with someone from my gym, who's also an instructor, amazing, talented person, um, and uh, married, super sweet couple, um, and kind of just told her my life story. And I mean, from the Marines and just sometimes wild, reckless youth, um, she didn't bat an eye. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love you. Like, this is great. And we became incredible friends. But what I found to that was I, I absolutely love this person and they're married. Like we're never gonna be together. But oh my gosh, what a, what a crazy, incredible soul this person is. And so it started pulling on this thread. And you know, kind of like what we talked about at the beginning, Simon, three and a half billion cell phones checked 85 times a day. And I just thought, you know, we're so caught up with what we do. We're so caught up with what we do. We've lost sight of who we are. Hmm. And so I started writing this book. I, I, I came up with the idea and I just started kind of piecemealing it together. And then in February, there was a contest to do a crowdfunding campaign on this website. And I, and someone had told me about the website like nine or 10 months ago while I was working on the lighthouse keeper. And I looked at it at the time and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but, and hadn't gotten an email from them. And then suddenly this email pops in and it's, Hey, there's this contest. It's going to run the month, month of March. You got to enter a video. You got to enter like a book proposal, kind of what your idea is about. And then you got to try to get 500 pre-orders before the end of March. Hmm. And I'm like, I just kind of, I was wrapping up all the production on the Lighthouse Keeper, my PR team, I was doing podcasts, I was talking and I was like, okay, 
this is good. And, and I looked at this email and I'm like, I don't even have, I mean, I don't have an outline. I just have this idea. And then I thought about it. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to pull this book out of me now. So I started, um, I did the contest. I did the video. It took me like 40 takes <laughs> to do a two and a half minute video. Um, <laughs> did, you know, 89 pre-orders, not a lot. Uh, I was one of the pre-orders. I'm like, I, I feel like, I feel sorry for this guy. I gotta, <laughs> um, but I believed in the book. I'm like, this is a good book. I believe in this. And, and then the pandemic happened. The pandemic happened and I was supposed to go to a mastermind in California with Jack Canfield, the, uh, the, I mean, just a brilliant soul who has uh, written the Chicken Soup for the Soul series of books, mm -hmm. sold 500 million books in his lifetime. I mean, just incredible, phenomenal. That was at the end of March. And um, initially I was just gonna talk about the Lighthouse Keeper, but then when I started looking at it, like they gave you questions, cause you, you, you your mastermind is basically you spend 45 minutes in the hot seat with Jack and he, you bounce your ideas off him. And I'm like, well, the lighthouse keeper was going to go at the end of March. So I don't really need any pointers on the lighthouse keeper. I mean, it is what it is. I guess I'm going to kind of give the premise of being so quarantine happens. Can't meet Jack face to face because the quarantine, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't fully invoked then, but social distancing was big. LA was this weird ghost town. Of, if you've ever been to Los Angeles, it's traffic's horrible. There was no traffic. It was just phenomenal. Mm. So we're on video like this. We're on Zoom with with Jack and uh, talk about the book and premise for being. And he's like, "Well, you know, yeah, yeah. you got a year. You're write the book." I said, "Okay." And it sounded weird because I still it stuck in my head that it sounded like he was telling me, "You've got a year to write the book." And I don't have a relationship with Jack. I don't. I mean, besides this mastermind, but it just struck me weird. So I was supposed to go to a conference on um, kind of keynote speaking in Florida the week after that, and the conference got canceled. So I came back home, started writing beginning of April, and I was going to write a traditional um, book. I was just going to write a traditional book. I was going to talk about, you know, basically make the case that we do too much and are too little and we don't understand the relationship that we we do things thinking that will you know to go back to the billionaire i want to be a billionaire well what does a billionaire do oh they do these things so i'm going to go do those things which i see on tv or facebook or instagram because that's where billionaires post um i'm going to have what billionaires have and then i'll be a billionaire hmm. but that's an external journey do this, have that, be that. That's kind of the hero's journey. And you talked about that earlier, right? Where we think we've got everything figured out, calamity hits, we got to rebuild, we got to, now it's bigger. That's, that's every superhero movie, every war movie is the hero's mm. journey. If you think, how does a billionaire think? What are their habits? And I'm using that just because that's the example that we've stuck on. What are their habits? What do they spend their time on? What do they think about? Who do they spend their time with? You start to create this identity, this idea. And even if I say, if, let's just say, what is, a, what is a New York Times bestselling author? How does that person behave? 
What are their thoughts? What are their habits? And I think about this is, this is who I believe that person to be. I create this identity. I write it mm. down. And then I say, okay, what does a billionaire? And, and so, so part of it is, okay, I, I stop and say, okay, well, I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a New York Times bestselling mm. author. I'm here now. This is who I am. But this is the idea. This New York Times, or I want to be a movie star. I want to be a movie star. That's what I think a movie star looks like. This is what I think they think about. This is how they behave. This is who they act with. Movie star. And then I say, okay, this is where I am. That's where I want to go. What do I have to do to get from where I am to the image of myself that I've created three months down the road, six months down the road? Hmm. And then what I realize is, oh, if I, if I behave like that person, and I do what I think that person does, then I'll have what that person has. But that's an internal journey. And so I sat down in early April to write, to start being. And the first chapter, uh, and you'll pick up a theme here, <laughs> but um, was gonna be about Caligula. And I was writing about Caligula because he did things to prove a point and he did things that didn't make sense. And uh, Caligula was the adopted son of, I think, Tiberius, if I have my emperors correctly, who was, a, you know, so, so Caligula was a third in the um, line of Caesars. Um, and um, Tiberius was looking at who was going to succeed him. He had adopted Caligula. Caligula's father had, had died in the war. And... Um, there was an astronomer in the group who said, Caligula will not be an emperor any more than he will ride a horse across the Bay of Naples. Hmm. And I don't know if Caligula was in the room, but Caligula gets named emperor. And, and I think it was 37 to 39, 39 to 37 BC, somewhere thereabouts, but historians disagree. It's either within the first six months of his anointment or sometime between six months and two years. What does Caligula do? He disrupts the grain supply and creates a three-mile pontoon bridge across the Bay of Naples so that he can ride a horse across, bring an army with him, bring his friends, party on the other side. He goes out to sea, like on a Greek, you know, warship at some point to like announce he's a god or whatever, comes back and they all have a party. He tells his legionnaires to collect seashells uh, to bring back the spoils of war back to Rome. And I, I wrote the first chapter and then I'm like, you know what, this doesn't make sense. I'm doing something to prove a point. I'm writing a book the way we think you have to write a book. And I'm writing a book where I can go ask experts about their opinion about the, dish, the relationship between being and doing. And I said, you know what, I'm not gonna do that. So I grabbed a notebook and I had a bunch of colored pens and I started writing. But the weird thing was I was writing in two separate voices and it was almost like a text conversation. Hmm. And I found the voices were talking about the beginning of time and the relationship between each other. And I wrote this first draft and I was like, what did I just write? And it was, I mean, it was like, it was 120 pages, but it took you 20 minutes to read. But every page had this weight on it. 
because it mm. felt like you were passing through time with each page. And even the words on the page had a relationship to each other. If the words were close together, that meant the ideas were close together. If they were far apart, then the ideas were far apart. If the ideas were on the same side of the page, then there was kind of a higher form of conversation going on. If one idea was mm. on the lower right-hand corner, so it was just this weird dynamic. I never experienced this. And I wrote the first draft and I was exhausted. I mean, my mind was just like, what happened? Mm. And then a week later, I wrote the second draft and the second draft went further. And then I started to realize like, where's this stuff coming from? Like, I'm not like, this isn't stuff I know. Like this is, mm. I'm being told this stuff and I'm pulling this information. And the example, that that comes to mind is like I, I understand the concept of hell and if you had told me at the beginning of april by the end of april you will know what hell is really okay so i i wrote five versions of this in five subsequent weekends and every version what i what i found simon was i was teaching myself how to write the book that I finished yesterday. Mm. And really I finished it today because I sent it off to my agent today. But I was teaching myself, every version was teaching me new things because a self-help book has to help the person writing it first. And until you figure out the message that you're telling yourself, you can't go on to the next version. Mm. When I finally got to this version, because the book initially was gonna be called being um, I think it was called, it was going to be called being how to win the game of life. And then two or three weeks ago, I said, no, it's going to be being how to win the game of your life. Hmm. But again, if you're teaching yourself, who's the message for it's for me, it's my life that I have to win the game of. That's why final version. And I know we're coming to the close here is being the book of David Testament of the first infinity. Mm. That's the name of the book. Yeah, man. I, I love it. And, and, you know, it sounds very similar to, you know, it's, it's, it's that muse. It's, it's the inspiration that, you know, the, the artist or the poet or the, you know, the writer feels where you don't necessarily know where it comes from, but it's there and, and it's teaching you more than you're, you're putting your thoughts down, you know, and it's brilliant. Simon, let me, let me, if, when I come to Australia, cause I'm going to be there. I will bring you a copy. I'll bring you all, I'll bring, I'm going to probably travel for the rest of my life with these different journals. Mm. One of the versions I was writing to myself and the muse was writing through me. And she said, I know this is hard, David, but just keep writing. Mm. So I wrote, so my hand wrote to myself, I know this is hard, David. Mm. And it was different words, but, but, but just keep writing. Yeah. And to have that moment and still think like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like mm. I, here's a bottle of water. There's my glasses, there's a cell phone. We're talking, you're in Australia. It's almost eight o'clock now. Uh, it's almost six o'clock here. Like I'm, I'm a rational sane person, but I just told myself through someone else's voice, it's gonna be okay, just keep writing. And I did. And, and the book that I have produced is my truth. It's my story, but it's a love story that spans almost our entire 
written history. Hmm. Yeah, man. I love it. I'm, I'm excited for this. And, and you know, when, when do you think it will be coming out? I'm going to actually read it live uh, next Sunday, May 17th on Instagram. Yep. Um, I suspect um, ideally there's a couple publishers that are in line. I think we're talking somewhere between July and August. So soon um, you don't have to have read the lighthouse keeper to get the picture. If you do read the lighthouse keeper, it will make a lot more sense when you read being being, I read it. I actually, I watched my mom read it today. It was kind of my mother's day present to her. Mm. Uh, it's 158 pages or so. It takes 30 minutes to read, but yeah. it is 30 minutes of heavy, heavy meaning. And yeah. that's the weight that you feel reading the book. Cause that's certainly the weight I felt writing it. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So when you're here in Australia, bring it over. Um, you know, know, as soon as it's out, I want to know where we can get it. Um, and you know, who knows, I might even be able to yeah. depending on when this episode goes out, we might have a link to where people can pre-order it or something like that. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if anybody wants to tune in on, uh, on, on May 17th, uh, they can look for me Definitely. on Instagram. I'm happy to do it. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes, David, this has been really awesome, man. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fascinating. It's, it's, it's just been, it's been really great to meet you and we'll have you back very soon. Simon, likewise, it's been a treat. Um, next time I will look up some Marcus Aurelius so we can, uh, we can dig more into that. But thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, just really grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Of course. All right, so there you have it, my interview with David Richards. Now, I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm hoping you guys did as well. And and uh, make sure you check out his links. They're all in the show notes to where you can find his books, uh, you can find his website and everything that he's doing online as well. So uh, again, I hope you enjoyed that and I'll talk to you guys next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.